dude, do you really think that what she wants in your life is flowers? She wants your heart. She wants your faithfulness. She would give up all the diamond necklaces in the world if she could have your life and your faithfulness and your heart. That's what she wants from you. She wants the covenant commitment that you made on your wedding day. She'd give all the diamond necklaces away if she could have that. And in exactly the same way, God is saying, like, do you really think I care about sacrifices? Do you really think I care about all your worship and your singing and your offerings if you're using it as an excuse to go and sin some more? God says no. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. The story of King David is a remarkable testimony of God's faithfulness to his people Israel. His life and faith journey point us to Christ, who is the promised king that would surpass David and save his people. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. And now, here's this week's message. Good morning. My name is Pete Dornboss. I've been coming to Gateway for two years, and I serve on the First Impressions team. This morning, we'll be reading from 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil, and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Elab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abimenad and had passed in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shehamah pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. 
Samuel then went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. He's been traveling for a few days now, and he's getting close to his final destination. It's a welcome thought because he's getting quite sore from riding. The donkey travels along the path up toward a steep cliff, and when they get to the top, it's a beautiful vista, and he can look as far as the eye can see. And there in the distance, a few miles out, he sees it, the destination that he has been longing for. And in this particular moment, he stops and he thinks to himself how he is filled for the first time in a long time with hope and with expectation. And he thinks to himself, when was the last time I thought this way? It's been so long. Certainly it was before Saul disobeyed the Lord with the Amalekites. Certainly it was before I even anointed Saul as king. It was even before Israel asked for me to anoint an earthly king to go out and to fight all their battles. It's been such a long time. The donkey, unprompted, begins to move again, and he's jolted back into reality. And now his eyes are fixed on Bethlehem, and his mind is fixed on his mission. A few miles later, he finally reaches his destination. It's a podunk little town, easily missed on a map, and this is an unannounced visit. However, everyone knows who is coming to visit them. This is a man who needs no introduction. This is the great prophet and priest of all of Israel. Everyone knows his name. Samuel has come to town, but why? Because he is so renowned, some run out to greet him. Others, they're afraid they close the blinds, hoping that he'll just march on through. Regardless of the posture that they take, by the end of this day, everyone will know that Samuel has come to their town. But why? By the end of this day, Samuel will anoint a little shepherd boy to be the next and future king of Israel. And for the next 1,000 years, this little boy's name will be mentioned in your Bible more than a thousand times, more than Abraham in your Bible, more than Isaac, more than Jacob, more than Moses, more than Peter, more than Paul. And perhaps that's the reason why 12 times in your Bible, Jesus is referred to none other than the son of David. He's never called the son of Abraham. He's never called the son of Moses, but he's called the son of David. And yet, I, I don't want you to get the wrong impression. If your idea of David is kind of what you've been reading in children's storybook Bibles, then you might have the wrong impression. You might have the wrong idea about this David that we are going to see. This story is going to have some twists and turns to it, and we are going to be shocked and appalled by some of the things that David does. We are going to be amazed by his capacity to engage in evil, and in wrongdoing. We're gonna find out that David is nobody's hero. We'll find a hero in the story, but it won't be David. And in this season of Advent, we're gonna see a man whom they call the Messiah, the Anointed One, the King of the Jews, the Giant Slayer, the Warrior, the Friend, the King. 
but it won't be David who we see. It will be the one to whom David points. And my prayer, as we enter into a stage, finally, after nine weeks, getting to the main character of this story, finally getting to David, it took a while, but we got there, that you will see the one to whom David points with greater color, with greater texture, with greater clarity. That you will see Jesus, the anointed one, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and you will see it through the heart of David. So to set the scene, I, I want us to, uh, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles, please, to 1 Samuel chapter 15. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. For the sake of our guests, I'm going to bring you up to speed. I'm going to take 30 seconds here to travel through nine chapters. Here's the scene. Israel decides to do what is right in their own eyes, even though God has said, I will be your protector. I will be your Lord. I will be your king who goes out and fights your battles. They say, God, you're great and all, but give us an earthly king to go out and fight our battles. And God, of course, treats that as a rejection of him. And like God often does for us, he does for Israel, he says, I will hand you over to your own decisions. I'll hand you over to your own foolishness. That's literally what Saul means. It means you asked for it. You sold it, and he gives them their choice, and it blows up in their face. So here's a way of framing everything we learned in the first nine weeks. Israel wants to be like the other nations instead of a light to the nations, and Saul wants to make a name for himself instead of a name for God. And I think to myself, that'll preach. That'll preach because we do exactly the same things. God says, I want you to be a light to the nations. I want you to showcase to the entire world who I am and what I have come to do. And yet we say, ah, oh, you know, I, I just want to be like everybody else. I don't want to stand out. I don't want to do what the Bible calls me to do when they say to be holy, which means to be set apart. I don't want to stick out like a sore thumb. I just want to go along to get along. I want to cozy up with everyone else. I don't want to be distinguishable from other people. And yet that's the desire of God, that we would be different to the world so that all will know that Jesus Christ is Lord. And just like Saul, he's the personification of the thinking of Israel, but he's also a stand-in for all of us. He's a case study for us, showcasing that if you board the train of the sin of self-deception, if you board the train of saying, you know what, uh, God, you're great and all, but I have my own little empire that I want to build, I want to be focused on myself and not on your kingdom, then it always, always, always ends in tragedy. That's where it always ends. And last week, we were looking at Saul's religiousness and his half-hearted obedience. So if you got your Bibles open, and I hope you do, chapter 15, verse 22. This is where we left off last week. But Samuel replied, Saul, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? as much as in obeying the Lord. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. 
For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. And because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. He says, Saul, you you still don't get it. Do you think that partial obedience is applauded in heaven? Do you really think that the slaughtering of innocent rams, who, by the way, haven't done anything wrong, anything of their own choosing, brings me more joy than if you were just obedient in the first place? Like, for those of you who are kids, young people, you can ask your parents later, Mom, Dad, would would you rather me hit my siblings and pull their hair and just make sure that I say sorry 100% of the time or not hit them in the first place? You ask them. Let me know what they say later. It's exactly the same thing. God is saying, do you, do you really think that what I want here is the slaughtering of rams? I want your heart. I want your faithfulness. I want your obedience. I want your life. I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your leftovers. I don't want your half-hearted apologies. I don't want the slaughtering of rams. I don't want the flesh of rams. I want, I want your flesh. I want your life. And Saul, he's kind of like a petulant teenager in the way that he says sorry. He's like, I'm sorry, okay? Can we just move on, right? Have you ever experienced that, parents? Don't raise your hand. Have you ever experienced it? You just want them to have remorse. Can you just be sorry and mean it? You know, and ah, sorry, can we move on? Can I get out of time out now? That's what Saul's doing, exactly the same thing. I'm sorry, can we move on? Can we move on with our lives? Can we just get back to business? It's not true, genuine repentance. It's, it's another form of self-deception. It's a desire to cover up the sin that entangles your heart and hardens it. And worse, it reveals within your heart um, your desire to exploit the tender mercy and grace of God. You think you can exploit it. You think you can take it for granted because there's always just going to be more grace and more mercy. And we see this in verse 24. Look at this with me. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Good start, right? But then it says, now. Another word you can put there, but. I beg you, forgive my sin. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over all of Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught the hem of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. And then verse 30, Saul replied, I have sinned, once again, but, there's the second big but, Please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Do you see? He's still bartering. 
Even after Samuel says, your kingdom has been torn from you, God will not change his mind. He's still bartering. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Okay, can we just move on? Can we just get in front of the people? Can we just make sure they know everything's okay? Can we get back to worship? Can we get back to sacrifices? Can I get back to building up my little earthly kingdom? I'm sorry, all right? He doesn't have the heart of God. He only cares about the consequences of his sin. He doesn't care about his sin and how it affects his relationship with God. He doesn't care about any of that. Can we just move on? Can we just get back to doing things the way we used to do them? And so he responds with half-hearted apologies and with excuses. And Samuel says, your throne will be taken from you. And as he leaves, Saul grabs the hem of his garment and it rips. And Samuel treats that as a teaching moment. And he says, in the same way that you ripped my garment, so too the kingdom will be ripped away from you and it will be given to someone else. It will be given to someone greater than you. And instantly, he doesn't even listen to it. He just goes, sorry, can we get back to it? Can we get back to it? He doesn't believe him. And the way that this particular story ends is the prophet priest Samuel, he goes home, Saul goes home, and they never see each other again. For the next 25 years, the voice of God, the direction of God, the will of God will have nothing to do with the throne. That's how that particular story ends. So as we turn the page to chapter 16 and start looking at the story of David, here's what we have to see in terms of setting that scene. Here's the first thing I put in your note sheet. Disobedience is to reject God's authority. To reject God's authority. See, what Samuel's trying to do with Saul is to say, look, sin, it's bigger than you think. It's way bigger than the way that you're thinking about it. Saul's like, yeah, I blew it. Can we just move on? Can we get back to being blessed? Yeah, I did something wrong. Can, can we just get back to worship, building my empire? That's like, that's like a person today saying, listen, God, I'll go to church. I'll, I'll uh, go to life groups. I'll give. I'll serve. But there's just certain parts of my life that I'm not going to devote to you. All right? I'm going to run my business the way I want to run it. I'm going to treat my sexuality the way I want to treat it. There's certain things that are off limits. God, I'm going to worship you for the most part, but there are other areas of my life where I'm just going to do it the way that I want. I'm going to live my life the way that I want to live it. I'm going to do it my way, not God's way. And so here's what this reveals. If you have your mirror Bibles open... And if you are kind of sensing in your heart of hearts that you've been bartering with God and you've been living your life this way, here's what it reveals. You are far more interested in God being your Savior than your Lord. You love the idea of God being your Savior. Man, he comes to the rescue every time. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. There's always more grace. But he is not the Lord of your life. He's not the Lord of the universe, and he's certainly not Lord of your life. You have reduced him down to a genie God, a cosmic consultant God, not the Lord of the universe. And that's what Saul's doing. And so don't miss this. Here's the second point. Number one, disobedience is to reject God's authority. Number two, to reject God's authority is to reject God himself. To reject God 
Samuel's like, oh, you clearly don't understand what sin is. You, you don't understand that it breaks the heart of God. You want to go back to worship, but what is the value in all the worship and all the sacrifices in the whole world if God doesn't have your heart? If he doesn't have your faithfulness? If he doesn't have your life? And so maybe an example would be helpful. And this is actually an example that's used in Hosea. So we have two men here, so picture the scene. You're Samuel, or you're like Samuel, and you're sitting down with a friend. You care about this guy. You tell him, listen, buddy, I, I love you. I hope you know that. I care for you, but I, I want to talk about your marriage. All right, I think it's absolutely great. I, I hear that in your marriage, after dinner, you, you clear off the table. And you mow the lawn, you, you pay the utility bill, and your wife, she asked you to paint the guest bedroom two years ago, but you painted it this past week. Good for you, all right? Also, I heard that this past week, you bought her flowers. And in light of her discovering something that you did, you even bought her new diamond necklaces. All that is great. Like, such great things. But listen, buddy, I gotta ask you, what good are all those things if you are repeatedly unfaithful to her? Like, if anything, all you're proving is the love of your wife can be bought through these I'm sorry necklaces and these earrings and these flowers, and yet you're repeatedly unfaithful to her. Dude, do you really think that what she wants in your life is flowers? She wants your heart. She wants your faithfulness. She would give up all the diamond necklaces in the world if she could have your life and your faithfulness, and your heart. That's what she wants from you. She wants the covenant commitment that you made on your wedding day, in life and in death, in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer. She'd give all the diamond necklaces away if she could have that. And in exactly the same way, God is saying, like, do you really think I care about sacrifices? Do you really think I care about all your worship and your singing and your offerings if you're using it as an excuse to go and sin some more? As a way of bartering with God? I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. Just give me what I want. God says, no. You've broken my heart and you are convinced that I can be bought. My love can be bought. My, my faithfulness, my mercy, and my grace can be bought. With your fine pearls, they can't. They can't. And so here's the third point. You cannot buy God's forgiveness. To obey or to be faithful is better than sacrifice. So let's get really practical for a moment. This presents, I think, two questions that we have to ask ourselves, that we have to consider in terms of our relationship with God, and it's going to require you to, to pick up your mirror Bible this morning. Here's the first one. Is there true confession of sin without remorse and repentance? Can you really say, honey, I'm sorry about my repeated unfaithfulness to you. Can, can we just get back to the way things are? Look, I, I bought you another diamond necklace. It's even more expensive than the last one I bought you. And I finished painting that room that you told me to paint two years ago, but I finally finished painting it. And yes, I'll probably be unfaithful to you again, but listen, there's always another diamond necklace. There's always more flowers I can give you. 
as if that's what she wants, as if that's what God is looking for from us. Half-hearted apology speeches as opposed to our hearts. What good is the confession of sin without true remorse and repentance? I've shared with you that to repent literally means to turn, to make a U-turn. It is a metamorphosis of the heart. You used to be like a worm, a caterpillar. Now you're like a butterfly. You have totally changed. You've been remade. You have been reborn. And in so doing, you now have the heart of Christ. In the way that he loves you and is faithful to you, you want to be that to him. Because you love him more than anything else in this world. You would much rather not satisfy the desires of your own flesh or the opinions of others as opposed to break the heart of God. Because you love him with all your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. And so you want to make much of Jesus because he is your life. See, a lot of this has to do with the way that you see God. So here's a, here's a kind of a barometer, if you will, a, a test that you can ask yourself. How do you see God in your story of life? See, if he's a minor character, you know, kind of like a cameo appearance from time to time in your story of life, then God confronting your sin is going to be treated as a nuisance, kind of like Saul, like, I'm sorry, can we get on with it? But if he is the main character in your story of life, then any sort of confrontation with God is always going to be front and center in your life. Everything else is going to stop. Everything else is going to change as you humbly come before this God and you say, Lord, please forgive me in true remorse and in a desire to repent and to turn. So here's my question to you. Is God the lead actor in your story of life? Or does he just make cameo appearances from time to time when you're stuck in a bind and you need that cosmic consultant, that genie God to show up and to help fix things in your life? How do you view God? And so tied to that, number two, what good is it to gain the whole world without the Lord? So I, I want you to see the outcome of Saul's disobedience. I find this really interesting. Like I shared with you, Samuel and Saul, after Samuel confronts Saul about his disobedience for a third time, and then he makes excuses, others made me do it. He lays out his half-hearted apology speech, I'm sorry, but, right? After all that, they go their separate ways. But here's what's interesting. For 25 years, Saul remains king. It's not like on account of his disobedience, boom, he's, he's no longer king. It's all over, right? It's like an instant switch. No, he's king for the next 25 years. He gets to live out much more of his life as king, the most powerful man in Israel, one of the most powerful men in the entire world, with all of his enemies under his feet. He has everything he could ever want, and yet, as the story re will reveal, he has nothing he ever wanted. He's filled with fear and doubt and dread. He is totally overwhelmed. And I find this so interesting because many of us can, can uh, associate with this. That we might have our own little mini empires that we're living. And there's, there's two ways that we can run from God. The first way is in our own brokenness 
and in our, our loss maybe of income or our house or our marriage, you know, things could be blowing up in our life and we could try to just pull up our own bootstraps. But the other way is things could be going really, really well and everything you've ever wanted has been given to you and you are totally convinced that it's because of you that it has happened. And in both of these instances, you can run from God. In both of them, in failures and in successes, there are unique ways that we can convince ourselves the whole world rides on me and my accomplishments. And isn't it interesting that even after God saves Saul from the Amalekites, the first thing he does is build a monument unto himself. Look at what I did. And then when things go poorly, what does he do? He says, oh no, and he's filled with dread. He's filled with self-pity. How do I get myself out of the corner? In both sickness and in health, in good times and in bad times, Saul is totally convinced that everything rides on him. So he builds up his empire. He builds it up. And in the end, he realizes it's nothing that he ever wanted. Nothing at all. What good is it to gain the whole world and not have the Lord? Or as Jesus will say a thousand years later in Mark chapter 8, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet to forfeit their soul? What good is that? So as we move from Saul as the main character of the story to David, I want you to see that your answer to these two questions helps us delineate between the heart of Saul and the heart of David. See, one of the concerns that I have is that some of you are convinced that the difference between Saul and David is their moral track record. And so the way it might go is Saul did bad things, he was a bad king, and therefore he was rejected by God. David did good things, therefore he was a good king, and he was accepted by God. No, no. I know, I know a lot of children Bible stories kind of give that impression because we're always talking about his heroic good deeds. When was the last time you read a children's Bible story on the story of Bathsheba? You know, like we, we don't hear those stories, right? What we really see is the stories of his accomplishments. But here's what we really see when we look at David. He is going to out-sin Saul, He's going to outsin him. David is the guy who will murder one of his friends and his generals. Why? Why would he do that? Well, first he commits a crime of passion, and he makes the war general's wife sleep with him. He gets her pregnant and goes, oh no, how do I cover that up? He murders him and then quickly marries her. David is the one who will have his own son, he doesn't make her do this, but his own son will rape his daughter and he will do nothing about it. There's another story in which these three brothers, David's sons, they will murder each other and David will do nothing about it. There is another story in which David, because of his ego, he puts his ego in front of the needs of Israel and thousands of innocents die. This is David. He is not the moral hero in this story. So then you might be asking the question, why then is David treated so positively in Scripture and Saul so negatively? Why is Jesus the son of David? Why is David the man after God's own heart? Why, why is he framed in such a positive way? And so this is the way I put it in your note sheet. 
This is the difference between Saul and David, which is also the theme of this entire book. God humbles the proud. That's Saul. And God exalts the humble. That's David. Humility is the difference between these two men. It is not their moral track record. It's their humility. And we miss it. Friends, even 3,000 years later, we miss it. So many churches are filled with this anti-gospel garbage that says, if you have a really good moral track record, if you do good deeds, God will bless your life. You know, for each dollar you put in the offering plate, he'll give you back tenfold. And, you know, if you go to church, you're faithful, you tithe, you do these sorts of good things, God will bless your life. But if you're not, God's gonna get you. And so you should have a heart like David. You should do good deeds like David and not do bad things like Saul. It's garbage. The difference between these two men is one of them was humble and contrite, and he was filled with remorse and repentance when he engaged in his sin, and he came back before God with his palms open, and he said, there's nothing that I can give you. And then the other king, every single time he was in a corner, he said to himself, how do I get out? How can I manipulate or control God? How can I build on my accomplishments? How can I build a shrine, an altar unto myself? It has everything to do with their heart and how they approached God. That's the difference between these two men. And so with that, I want you to look at chapter 16, verse 1 with me. Look at how the story reveals this. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil. Be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen, circle, highlight, underline, one of his sons to be king. I have chosen. Listen, Samuel, for 15 chapters, I have allowed Israel to make their own choices, to do what is right in their own eyes. They sold it. They asked for it. I gave it to them, and it blew up in their face, but now it's my turn. I'm going to make a choice. This is my pick. This is my doing, and I want you to see how my redemption story will work itself out through David, and it will not work itself out through Saul. That's what God says. And then we read verse two. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. I I find this really interesting. Even Samuel has fears. Even Samuel, the, the one who said directly to Saul, your kingdom will be ripped away from you. He's still afraid. And so the message is, even to Samuel, the prophet priest of Israel, you can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk? Will you carry it through? Will you walk in obedience even in the midst of your fears? And Samuel does. It says, the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are anoint, you are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. The one that I indicate. So here's a question, friends. I think this will apply to some of you more than others, but, but I think it begs the question as we look at this. For some of you, how long are you going to continue to treat God as your cosmic consultant, as your genie God? 
How long are you going to continue to treat God not as the Lord of the universe, sovereign over all things, and certainly sovereign over your heart, and rather to deduce him and reduce him down to something that you can manipulate and control? And maybe, just maybe, that's the way that you've been treating God. New Year's is coming up. A lot of people are in the season of making New Year's resolutions. How long are you going to treat God this way? Where you're going to say, God, you can have my Sundays, you can have my Wednesdays, you can have certain parts of my income, but there's other parts of my life that I have reserved for myself, just for me, what I want to do, and I want to have my cake and eat it too. How long are you going to treat God that way? God says, I don't want your money. I don't want your half-hearted obedience. I don't want segments or parts of your life. I want your life. I want all of it. When are you going to give that to me? When are you going to yield and to say, God, here I am. Nothing is off limits. Nothing is off limits. When will you make that choice? At some point, if you haven't already, you're going to come face to face with the decision like Israel. Are you going to continue to make your own picks or are you going to allow God to make his pick in your life? Verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourself and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at things other people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. Circle, highlight, underline, squiggly mark in your Bible. See, when Samuel sees Eliab, he says, look at this guy. Now that's a specimen, like etched out of stone. He looks like Thor, right? Muscles on top of his muscles. Tall, dark, and handsome. Everything that you want to see. He still has his Bethlehem high football jacket on. Clean shaven, right sort of aftershave. You get the picture, right? Like he is a man. And does he remind you of anyone? He should. He looks just like Saul. Taller than the rest. Muscular, beautiful, fine features. And in this instance, even Samuel says, that's the guy. This is the man. And God says, nope, I have rejected him. You are looking at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. He's not the one. And as I was thinking about this, I thought, I thought about this. I put it this way in your note sheet. Sometimes, God needs to save us from our own saviors. From our own saviors. Some of you are like, that doesn't sound right. God, God needs to save us from our sins. Yeah, that's true. But I meant it the way that I said it. Sometimes God has to save us from our own saviors. 
Maybe some of you have a heart like Saul, where your savior is yourself, right? And you're convinced when you're in a corner, you've got to find a way to get yourself out. And when things are going well, you're convinced it's because, because of my own accomplishments and my own awesomeness. Either way, you are totally caught up in the savior of me, my own ego, my own desires. But for others of you, it, it might be who gets elected into political office. You put a lot of hope into that. Or it's the stock market, or your financial position, or your marital status, or your social status, or the toys that you can buy, or your cars, or your house, or your reputation, or your grades, or, 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 or. It's everything in your orbit that you are seeking to control. And that's the picture. That's what Eliab paints for us. That's our guy. And God says, you are looking at external things, but I look at the heart. And the story continues in verse 8. Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel, but Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen him either. Jesse then told Shammah to pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are, there, are these all the sons that you have? And notice this, he doesn't even name him. I find this interesting. They're still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. It literally says in the Hebrew that his eyes were beautiful. That's what that means. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And then Samuel went back to Ramah. And so we read throughout Scripture that God often makes the unlikely pick, the unlikely choice. We see that God doesn't look at the external, but he looks at the internal. God chooses the humble Abel, not Cain. God chooses the younger Jacob, not Esau. God chooses the humble Leah, not Rachel. God chooses the humble Hannah, not Penina, the story goes on and on and on in a world where we're often fixated on the strongest, the most powerful, the loudest, the most beautiful. God often chooses the weaker. He chooses the weaker, the smaller, the humbler. That's where God always goes. God always looks at the heart. We read in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, for the eyes of the Lord see throughout the land looking for hearts fully committed to him. Not the strongest, not the loudest, not the most powerful in our midst, but those who have hearts oriented toward God, those who are humble before the face of God. And that's where David comes in. He has a heart of humility and as I shared with you already, I find it really interesting that Jesse doesn't even, not only does he not bring his son to this gathering, even though he's been instructed to bring all of his sons, he doesn't even mention his son by name. 
Now, I could just be reading between the lines, but I'm convinced that Jesse was convinced that a humble, small, petite shepherd boy is not kingly material. And so his own father says he's not the one. And he makes a predetermined pick based on that. But he, just like Samuel, just like Israel, is looking at external appearance. He's not looking at what God looks at, which is the humility of their heart. And so as we try to apply this to ourselves today, here's what I want you to see. Here's kind of the plain main thing of this text. God wants to change your heart to have a heart like David. And in order to do that, God wants to show you his Because the only way that your heart is going to change, be renewed, be changed from a heart of pride to a heart of humility, is if you see the heart of God and what he has done for you. Until that heart of stone is melted away and you see God for who he truly is, that is the only possible way that your heart can be changed. And that is exactly what this story does. What is it about this humble shepherd boy named David that God says, this is the picture that I want all of my people to see that reveals my heart? I want to show you. Ezekiel chapter 34 is a really good picture of this. Because it talks about David and the heart of David. It says, starting at verse 6, My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every hill. They were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched or looked for them. So the context is that the shepherds of this time, the leaders of Israel, uh, they had no interest in caring for the vulnerable in their midst and those who are far from God. They were filling their own pockets. And God says, I will reject them, and I will insert a new king. Verse 23, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David. That's interesting. David's long gone. Why why is Ezekiel, or why is God through Ezekiel talking about David? Is David going to rise again? No. See the pictures. Samuel's filled with pictures to help you see what's happening in the unseen realm. This is a new David, a better David, and David will tend to them. He will tend to them and be their shepherd. So look with me at the one to whom David points. A thousand years later, we see the anointed one, the one who has been baptized by the Holy Spirit by John the Baptist. He looks out at the crowd and it says that he's filled with compassion on them. Here's what it says. When Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. In the story of Samuel, we will see that David will prove himself to be a good shepherd because he was always willing to risk his life for his sheep. But in the gospel, we see that Jesus is the true and greatest shepherd because he will not only risk his life, but he will give it for the sake of his sheep. And it's for that reason that Jesus will say to his own disciples, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Do you see this Jesus? 
Do you see what he has come to do? To change your heart from the inside out. To change your your heart of pride, your heart of self-importance. And so I want to end this morning with this question. And we'll close in just a couple of minutes here. How do you get a heart like that? How do you get a heart like David? A heart like Jesus? Well, it starts with this question. Which king or hero will you choose to rule over your heart? Some of you here, you might have a heart like Saul, and you are totally convinced that I need to change the orientation of my life through my effort, my ingenuity, my willpower, my strength, my, 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 my. Aren't you tired? Aren't you tired? God wants to give you something greater, but what it's going to take is not your half-hearted obedience. It's going to take your life. God says, I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your worship on Sundays only. I want your life. Give me your life. That's what I want. Faithfulness, covenant, marriage. I want, I am yours. You are mine. We're in it together for thick or for thin, for sickness or health, for death. I will do that. And so God makes a way when there was no way. And when you see Jesus for who he truly is, the good shepherd who stretches out his hands and willingly dies in your place, it will then begin to melt and to soften your heart to be receptive to this God and to be humble in your own right. And so you're looking at this Jesus and you are beginning to see that what is required of you is humility. This is the posture that God is looking for in all of us. Palms open, hands out. God, there's nothing I can give you. There's nothing I can offer you. I can't make up for my past mistakes. My foolishness, my stupidity, the way I have rejected you. God, there's nothing I can give you. Please, God, change my heart, change my heart. I can't do it on my own. I can't do it in my own strength and my own power anymore. Lord, take my heart. This is what God is looking for in us. But it takes that first step from you to say, I will lay down my idols. The idolatry of self-importance. And I will give it over to him. For those of you who've been following Jesus many years, or maybe some of you here today who are still on the fence about this Jesus, this is what he says to you. He says, come to me, Justin. Come to me, fill in your name. You who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. 
Well, you've been listening to the latest message in our series through First and Second Samuel, tracing the life of David, the Shadow King. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway.